Let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Romans. Chapter 2, verses 17 through 24. Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 24. Let's give ear now to God's Word. Indeed, you are called a Jew, and rest on the law, and make your boast in God, and know His will, and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us here this morning. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help this morning, let's turn back to the passage we read from Romans chapter 2. As we continue from last week, focusing our attention on verses 23 and 24 as representative of this entire section, verses 17 through 24. Verse 23, you who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. We're dealing here this morning once again with hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. And we spent a lot of time uh, in our previous sermon considering how God had called the Jews in the Old Testament to be light and salt and leaven. To be a kingdom of priests. Not so much to go out into all the world, as you see with Jonah, that was a bit of an exception to the rule, but to say, come and see this centralized location of the temple or the tabernacle in Jerusalem so that people like the Queen of Sheba would come and understand the reality of the God of Israel. Come and see. There was a missionary mandate in a sense, an evangelistic mandate For the Old Testament Israelites, they had God's law and people were supposed to see God's law as this beautiful revelation of wisdom and justice and truth and righteousness, as it says in Deuteronomy chapter 4, and so that they would be attracted to this God whom the Israelites worshipped. So God had His strategic centralized location in the Middle East right smack dab in the center of the world map. And Israel failed. They failed miserably. There are some bright spots. There are some converted Gentiles within the narrative of the Old Testament. We rejoice in that. But when it comes down to it, you see 
the fruit of their unfaithfulness in those first century Jewish Pharisees that Jesus confronted time and time again for their leaven of hypocrisy. The leaven that spreads, that pervades the dough. They weren't spreading the truth. They were spreading really unrighteousness, hypocrisy. Putting forward a good face, wearing a mask of religiosity, traveling over land and sea to win a single convert, but making that person twice a child of hell as themselves with this leaven of hypocrisy. And the Gentiles had their fill of it pretty quickly when they saw the behavior of the people in the Jewish synagogue, which you had synagogues throughout the Roman world at that time. And Paul, who is a Jew, says quite clearly, as a Jew who had lived in Tarsus, and who had lived among the Gentiles as well as lived in Jerusalem. He'd seen it all. And he says that the name of God is blasphemed among these Gentiles because of you. Because of your inconsistency. Because of your hypocrisy. Last time we saw hypocrisy's basic character. That it comes from a Greek word that indicates a mask that an actor would wear to portray himself or herself in a different light than was actually the case. And used in religious terms, it refers to someone who is a fake, a phony, a fraud. Someone who is filled, as we saw, with personal pride, as reflected in our passage. Proud about their reputation, their labels, their accolades. They're called Jews. They rest on the law, self-righteous in their own so-called obedience to the law. They're proud and they boast in God in all the wrong ways. We're the children of God, they tell Jesus. We were not born of fornication like you were, John chapter 8. They boast in this outward advantage they have in covenant with God. They boast in knowing God's will. They're the experts who approve or disapprove of doctrine, of things that are excellent. They're the experts And if they didn't believe in Jesus, you shouldn't even uh, give Him a second glance. They pride themselves in being instructed out of the law. And they had a condescending spirit, a superiority complex. They were confident in themselves, Paul says, and they made all these flattering comparisons, which are reflected in what Paul says here, in a sense, tongue-in-cheek. Everybody else is blind. These are the the guides, the experts. Everybody else is in darkness. They have the light. Everybody else is foolish. They're the instructors. Everybody else is an infant, a baby. They're the teachers. And uh, of course, we know that there is a superiority in the Word of God. We'll say something about that later. But they took on that superiority into their own character and personality and carriage, if you will, in relation to others. Condescending. We saw as well that they were content with outward forms. That's another aspect of hypocrisy. The form of godliness. The outward form of the law, Paul says. This external intellectual structure of systematic theology and ethics. These outward ordinances of the ceremonial law. Drawing near to God with their lips while their heart was far from Him. Jesus says they're like whitewashed sepulchers. On the inside, there is dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Very ungodly. 
lustful, greedy, angry people, but on the outside, whitewashed. And he says, clean the inside of the cup and dish as your priority rather than the outside. So, content with the outward forms. In addition, we saw that hypocrisy involves this flagrant practical inconsistency. They said many things, Matthew Matthew 23, but they didn't do those things. They bound heavy burdens hard to bear. Everybody else needs to do this, this, and this. But they weren't laboring and striving to do any of these things even with their finger. So there's this flagrant practical inconsistency. And when Jesus actually is confronted with this dilemma, when the Pharisees bring the woman caught in adultery to Jesus, by the end of it, you get the sense, when he says, he who is without sin cast the first stone, you get the sense that these men who brought the woman, number one, why didn't they bring the man? Why are they covering for the man who was supposedly involved in this adultery? Number two, they seem in their conscience to be afraid to stand up and say, yeah, I'm, I'm free from this sin. Because very likely they were filled with dead men's bones and all uncleanness, sexual uncleanness that they kept secret and vouched for each other and covered up in the background. So flagrant practical inconsistency. In addition, fraudulent self-promotion. False advertising. So they're thinking and doing these evil things and yet they wear their religion as a badge of honor, promoting the idea that they're very godly, that they're obedient to the law, and pulling the wool over people's eyes. Wolves in sheep's clothing. They wear the sheep's clothing. They want to look like a sheep. They put out press releases that they're sheep. They blow the trumpet and give out money to the poor. They fast, they pray, and it's all a show. Grandstanding. At the, of the worst kind. Disingenuous, dishonest, vainglorious, and fake. And finally, we saw radical self-deception. According to Paul, verse 19, they are confident that they, in fact, are a guide to the blind, a light to the darkness. They're confident. They actually think that they're going to heaven. And so, uh, Jesus says that this same mindset was a danger for His own followers in every age. Those who say, Lord, Lord, but ultimately they're false prophets because they did not do the will of the Father. He says, not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. So, this self-deception. And that's why Isaiah thirty-three fourteen in the King James says that the hypocrites will be surprised when God brings His hand of judgment they'll be surprised, many of them. They thought God was like themselves. Psalm 50, verse 21. We have one Father, even God. So this is extremely dangerous. Hypocrisy, not only the spread of hypocrisy, but simply the, the, the rule and reign of hypocrisy in any one individual will take you to hell. If hypocrisy is predominant in your life, it will drag your soul to hell. And all the while, you'll be thinking you're headed for heaven. So we need to be very, very concerned about this. William Gurnall says, God is in the hypocrite's mouth, but the world is in his heart. So we have to get past the exterior. 
Not, the, not that the exterior is totally unimportant. Paul says, avoid every appearance of evil. So we, we need to guard our reputation. It's more precious than rubies and diamonds. But we need to get past the exterior and begin with the heart. Uh, is God simply in your mouth while the world is in your heart's affection and your desires and your priorities? Thomas uh, Brooks, the Puritan, says this, It is not the presence of hypocrisy, but the reign of hypocrisy that damns the soul. That hypocrisy that is discerned, resisted, opposed, and mourned over will never make a Christian miserable. And there he's using that as a reference to hell. It'll never send you to eternal misery. So as we listen, as we consider the leaven of hypocrisy, understand we're all going to find the presence of hypocrisy in one way or another. It is inescapable. And we need to identify and discern it and resist it and oppose it and mourn over it and humble ourselves. But the danger is if we don't do that, hypocrisy will take the throne if it has not already. And that is the hypocrisy that reflects a soul that is under the wrath of God both now and apart from repentance for eternity. Another quotation from a Puritan, Thomas Manton. He says this, Hypocrites must be roused with some asperity and sharpness. So the Apostle says, O vain man! So Christ says, Ye fools and blind! So John the Baptist says, O generation of vipers! Hypocrites are usually inconsiderate and of a sleepy conscience, so that we must not whisper but cry aloud. We must, by the warrant of those great examples, deal with him more roughly. Listen to what Manton says. Mildness only soothes him in his error. Mildness only soothes the hypocrite in his error. And you notice the tone that Paul takes basically in this whole chapter. Who do you think you are? You're sitting back critiquing the Gentiles. You're critiquing the the woke culture around you and all the, the unrighteousness and perversion sitting on your high horse. But the fact is, there much of this is easily explained. It's because of you, because of your hypocrisy. And Paul does not use mildness any more than than you would use mildness in, in shouting to someone inside a burning building. Uh, when they get out the defibrillator to try to bring somebody back, it's not mild. It's violent, but it needs to be. Uh, There's much here for us to consider, and I want to pick up where we left off by speaking now of hypocrisy's ungodly offspring. Hypocrisy's ungodly offspring. Remember, we're dealing with the leaven of hypocrisy. It spreads, it multiplies, it pervades. Jesus said the seed of His kingdom ought to be like that and will be like that throughout history. But when we think of hypocrisy, understand this leaven of hypocrisy multiplies. It grows. It spreads. It reproduces. And that's why the hypocrisy of the Jews not only... uh, caused the Gentiles in a way, tempted the Gentiles to blaspheme God on account of that hypocrisy. But it also produced an evil, ungodly offspring among the Jews. 
And I want us to look at two examples, two, two types of ungodly offspring that we find coming from the leaven of hypocrisy. First, there is hypocrisy's firstborn son, Hypocrisy Jr. Hypocrisy Jr. Paul was Hypocrisy Jr. A Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees. As I said, the Pharisees went over land and sea, and what did they do? They made converts twice the children of hell as themselves. They were reproducing. They were multiplying. Jesus and John the Baptist both call them uh, a brood, a generation, a spawn, if you will, of vipers. Luke 6, verse 40 A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. This is why hypocrisy in the pulpit, in the eldership, in the home, with parents, is so deadly and devastating. Because in every one of those instances, we're seeing discipleship, authority, teaching, instructing. And if it's the case, Jesus says that a disciple is not above his teacher... But everyone who is perfectly trained or fully trained will be like his teacher, then we need to be very concerned here. You see it among the Jews. They're making disciples that are twice the children of hell. Their ungodly offspring, Hypocrisy Jr., is just like themselves. That's a concern. Be concerned about that, parents, especially. As elders, we'll be concerned about that for ourselves. We need to be concerned about that. But as parents, every parent in here needs to be concerned about that. How do you present yourself to your children? Are you presenting a false persona to your children? Or are you presenting a false persona to everybody else and your children see the real you? And they see the discrepancy. They see the flagrant practical inconsistency, the fraudulent self-promotion. Uh, they see perhaps that, that you profess great things, but in reality, at a basic level, you're not really living up to those things. And yet you're presenting yourself as if you are living up to those things. And you're posturing yourself toward them in positions of parental authority, instances of exercising parental authority. You're posturing yourself as if You've got it all together and they know that you don't and they see that you don't. Now there are a number of things. We'll look at the second instance of the, the other example of ungodly offspring. But thinking here of hypocrisy junior, what you're teaching them is that that's what Christianity is and it's really easy. You just do uh, act a certain way once a week, twice a week in certain company and then you can pretty much fly by the seat of your pants in every other circumstance of life and it's really easy. Christianity is very simple. You just make a profession and you live a certain way in public and you can pretty much think and say and do whatever you want and the people under your authority have to do what you say or else it's very easy. And you can tempt them to want to embrace this kind of Christianity that does not involve humbling ourselves for our sin, doing the hard thing of confessing and coming to people we've sinned against and saying, please forgive me. No, all of that difficult stuff is out of the equation. It's really easy. 
you should try it. And that's what you are to your children. You're an advertisement. You're trying, you're, whether you like it or not, you're teaching and training and discipling them to want to be that type of a Christian, if we can even call it a Christian. Hypocrisy Junior, twice the children of hell. Sometimes our children are better than us at sports. Sometimes they're better than us in terms of their career. Sometimes they're smarter than us. Certainly they think they are for a certain point. But, you know, our children, let's be honest, many of them are going to end up far exceeding us in many areas. And yet the fact is, frequently they exceed us in all the wrong ways. And what is merely a character flaw in us can become a dominant characteristic in our children. And our hypocrisy leads to hypocrisy junior, twice the child of hell. This is extremely dangerous. And listen to, again, Thomas Brooks speaking of an unsound or hypocritical Christian. He says, An unsound Christian loves cheap obedience. He is willing to fall in with those commands which are not costly. He loves a cheap gospel, a cheap ministry, a cheap membership, and a cheap communion of saints. The bare minimum. The bare minimum, try to save face and uh, go from there. If that is the Christianity that you're advertising to your children, the bare minimum, don't be surprised if they grow up with the bare minimum. In fact, at a certain point they may say, as we transition here in a moment to the second example of ungodly offspring, at a certain point, they may just say, well then why are you a Christian at all? If you're not really that into it, why should we even be here? What's the point? Okay, But, there is that danger that they follow in your footsteps. Hypocrisy junior. Secondly, uh, after you've got that firstborn son, you have uh, two twin daughters. Impiety and blasphemy. Impiety and blasphemy. We see this with respect to the Gentiles, the name of God, rather than being reverenced on account of the holiness of the Jews, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of their hypocrisy. And I think this is obvious, that if we live hypocritical lives, if that is the predominant characteristic of our lives, in other words, rather than humbling ourselves for our sins, and fighting against sin in the eyes of our children so they can see us humbling ourselves, dealing with sin, wrestling with sin, growing in grace. If they're not seeing that, if they're seeing flagrant practical inconsistencies, fraudulent self-promotion, radical self-deception, personal pride, condescending spirit, if they're seeing that in us, yeah, they might be tempted to follow in our footsteps, but in many cases it's the exact opposite the two twin daughters of impiety and blasphemy. They say, if that's Christianity, then I don't want anything to do with Christianity. If if the Christian church is like this, and why should I think it's anything different? I grew up in a Christian home. It was hypocritical. Why should I think that it's not the case that all the Christian families in the church are like this? Mine was like this. So they're probably all like this. And so why should I be concerned with prayer and Bible reading? Because what I've seen in my home is that that doesn't mean anything. It's just a token ritual if it happens at all. It's it's meaningless. 
And so if my parents aren't into this, if they're into taking the cheap option, bare minimum, why shouldn't I just opt out? What's the point? You know, my, my parents don't pay attention in church. Why should I even go to church? Uh, twice the children of hell in the other sense. Impiety, blasphemy. They become hardened in unbelief. They become cynical toward the Christian faith because they see that rather than being adorned with godliness, it's adorned with fraudulent self-promotion. They become aggressive. They become antagonistic. They mock. They blaspheme. They dismiss the Christian faith because they've seen a physical circumcision, but they haven't seen true spiritual circumcision, the true Jew whose praise is not from men, but from God. They haven't seen that. And so they just reject it altogether. My friends, this is a danger. This is a danger in the church today. Understand, this is happening. Why do you think over the last several decades, even centuries in our land, that we've gone from a predominantly Christian-minded country, not saying 100% regenerate or anything, not with the rose-colored glasses or whatever, but just saying a predominantly Christian-minded country, that was our past, and now we've become hardened in unbelief. We become cynical toward the Christian faith, aggressively antagonistic, dismissive, mocking, and blasphemous. How do you think that happened on the macro scale? It happened on the macro scale because it happened on the micro scale in family after family after church after congregation after denomination being infested with the poisonous leaven of hypocrisy. And generation after generation after generation, children were lost to this disease and blasphemed God and rejected His Word on account of it. This is vital. This is the most vital thing we can do to prevent further decline is to keep our children. We can't guarantee their salvation, but my friends, God is for you, not against you as a Christian parent. Okay, We don't assume that our children are regenerate or elect, but we assume God is with us and for us. He's given us these children and we're optimistic, and we need to batten down the hatches on this particular issue so that we're not driving our children away. Rebecca, uh, Rebecca had nations in her womb. So, raising up godly offspring over time can make a big impact, especially in a nation where you see the birth rate plummeting. So, we need to take this to heart. We want to have godly offspring, not poison our children that they become ungodly offspring. It's happening in the church. It's happening in the nation. Now, with that said, with that said, we have to deal with the sin of blasphemy and impiety. Okay? Are you justified in rejecting the Christian faith? Are the Gentiles justified in blaspheming the name of God because of Jewish hypocrisy? It's understandable that they do it. We see the causal connection. I'm not questioning that. But let's, let's say I'm speaking to the Gentile who's seen the hypocritical Jew with all of his fancy tassels, breaking the law of God and putting on a good face. If I'm speaking to that Gentile, 
who's turned away because of hypocrisy. Or if I'm speaking to a covenant child who has seen the hypocrisy and who says, all right, talk to the hand. Is it legitimate to turn away? On judgment day, will God look at you having rejected the Lord Jesus Christ and His Gospel on account of hypocrites in the church or in your family or in the nation? Will He say to you, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Will He say that to you? You did the right thing. Church is full of hypocrites. Family's full of hypocrites. Well then, you might as well just cast it behind your back and go live for the world. Is He going to justify that kind of response? No, He is not. He's going to say, depart from Me. I never knew you. Into the place prepared for the devil and his angels. And this is why hypocrisy's ungodly offspring is so dangerous because hypocrisy junior, impiety, blasphemy, they all become children of hell. They all go to hell. And we don't want that to happen. And we can try to prevent that from happening and head it off at the pass by not being hypocritical. But let's recognize that that hypocrisy has already taken its course in many instances in our society and in the church. So we have to address the people that have been impacted by that hypocrisy and say, don't go the way of Cain. Don't turn away from Christ because of the hypocrisy of those who profess His name. And oftentimes you hear people give their reasons why they're going to reject the Christian faith, why they're going to reject the Christian church because of this. And they say, I'm going to reject Christianity because I want to avoid hypocrites. The church is filled with hypocrites. So if I can distance myself from the church, Christianity is filled with hypocrites. If I can distance myself from Christianity, then I will avoid being surrounded by hypocrites. And so I'm not going to come to church. I'm not going to join a church. I'm going to keep it all at arm's length or just flat out run in the other direction. Does that make sense? If you reject Christ, is that really going to enable you to avoid the company of hypocrites? Think about that for a second. Is that a good argument? I'm going to avoid Christ and turn against God because there are hypocrites in the church and therefore I'm going to have hypocrites in my rearview mirror never to be seen again. Well, first of all, we're all hypocrites. We could go in that route. But here's the thing. If you become twice the child of hell, if you reject the only gospel of salvation and are damned, for your hypocrisy. You're going to spend eternity in hypocrisy's eternal headquarters. You're going to spend eternity with the prince of darkness who presents himself as an angel of light, the ultimate hypocrite of all time. You're going to be in the place that the Bible says is filled with hypocrites. Jesus in Matthew 24, verse 48 He says, but if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of and he will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
So by blaspheming the name of God and turning away from God and His church, far from leaving the hypocrites in your rearview mirror, you are securing an eternal inheritance, a portion among those hypocrites. You'll be surrounded by them. We don't know to what extent there is any interaction in hell, but whatever interaction there is, it is thoroughly miserable and distasteful and unpleasant in every respect. You will be surrounded by religious hypocrites that filled the church. The ones you were offended by, who were unconverted people in the church, the people in your family that were unconverted and hypocritical, um, you've just punched your ticket to be right in the same place they're at for all eternity. So that does not make any sense. I'm sorry, no matter how you want to look at it, that makes no sense whatsoever. By rejecting Christianity, you're going to be surrounded by these hypocrites. The only way to avoid hypocrites is to put your trust in Christ. It's to be forgiven of your own hypocrisy, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, so that God will sanctify you and one day bring you to heaven where there will be zero hypocrisy. There will be no hypocrites. All the hypocrites will be in hell alongside the other hypocrites, alongside the Gentiles who blaspheme God's name, alongside the people in the church that use the hypocrites as an excuse to reject Christ. So buckle your safety belt if you're planning to reject Christ on, on, in order to avoid hypocrisy. You're only increasing the unpleasantness of that misery. Well, uh, what is hypocrisy's biblical alternative? Hypocrisy's biblical alternative. I mentioned Jesus dealing with the woman caught in adultery and in, in, a, in a way rebuking the hypocrisy of those who brought that woman to him. Of course, she needed to repent and she needed to go and sin no more. But Jesus, in a way, pointed out the way in which these hypocrites had been condemning her, but not reckoning with their own sin, perhaps even their own flagrant sexual sin. But in that passage, after John, under inspiration, includes that passage, Notice what comes immediately afterward. Verse 12 of John chapter 8. Then Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows Me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. I am the light of the world. He who follows Me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He's saying... These, these hypocrites, these Pharisees are shifting around in the shadows, living an ungodly, unclean lifestyle, outwardly condemning sin and adultery in this woman. But he says, I am the light of the world. If you stand in my presence, your sin will be exposed. Notice the woman's sin was exposed. Jesus didn't say, oh, I, I'm so sorry, you're a victim. He says, go and sin no more. He's merciful to this vulnerable woman, but he doesn't fail to point out that she has sinned. And he calls her to repentance. And it, it seems to be the case that she stood there before him and received that word. And, and we have hope that, that she is in heaven, forgiven and cleansed by the blood of Christ. But the point is, she stood before Jesus, whereas these other hypocrites 
went their way. Uh, Verse 9, those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone with this woman. So, by the way, unconverted people can be convicted in their conscience. doesn't mean you're saved just because you have some regret or some feeling that you've done something wrong. These unconverted Pharisees were convicted in their conscience, but it caused them to run away from Christ into the shadows. This woman stood in the light, stood before the Lord who is the light of the world, was exposed, and we trust went and walked in obedience after that. But the biblical alternative is the light. Not hiding in the shadows and putting out press releases, hiding our sin. The answer is walking in the light. And that's specifically what the Apostle John reminds the believers in Asia Minor in the first chapter of his first epistle. 1 John 1.6, if we say that we have fellowship with God who is light, and in Him is no darkness, he says. If we say we've got fellowship with that God and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we hide our sin, if we try to cover our sin with a good show, if we grandstand, if we do it because of what people will say, what people will think, and we're not genuine and sincere, humbled Christians because of our sin, then the blood of Christ will not cover our sin. We have to stand and walk in the light. We have to be exposed. We have to admit when we're wrong. We have to apologize when we're wrong. We have to ask forgiveness when we're wrong to God and to man. And when we walk in the light and are willing to be exposed... Because we know our only hope of righteousness is the righteousness of Christ, right? I mean, deep down, the person who's hiding their sin is probably hiding it because they don't understand the gospel. They don't really understand free grace. They don't really understand justification by faith alone. They're afraid that if they're tagged as a sinner, then all hell is going to break loose. They don't understand that, in fact, it's in being exposed and confessing those sins, as John says later, that we find cleansing. That's the gospel. It starts with the light. It starts with the exposure. If we say that we have no sin, he says, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Again, why would you be tempted to think or say that you have no sin? If Christ's righteousness, if His shed blood will cleanse you of that sin, you don't have to be afraid to come out into the light and be yourself and deal with your problems. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. So you can see the balance here. On the one hand, we're exposed. Our sin, uh, we have to confess it to others. We have to confess it before God. We have to humble ourselves. We can't just continue to pretend that we're not sinners. Or that we, ha- you know, we, we could say, well, I'm a sinner. I'm a great and terrible sinner. We could say that all day long. But in real life situations, do you apologize for your sins? Do you ask forgiveness? Uh, is it just, oh, what a wretch am I? 
but for the grace of God, a bunch of mumbo-jumbo, but in real situations, you're not actually, when you feel you've done something wrong, confessing that to other people and confessing it to God in tangible situations. Uh, So we have to be exposed, but on the other hand, all of our sin, all of our sin will be cleansed. It's just like an x-ray machine or a CAT scan. Why do they expose the injury or the cancer so that they can heal the injury and remove the cancer? That's the whole purpose of it. It's not just to make you feel bad or it's not just to embarrass you. I mean, you think of church discipline when the church has to make declarations about people and you say, ah, but that's, that's you know, the person's ashamed. Well, the Bible actually says, have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. That's part of the, the, the exposure. But what's the goal? Cleansing. Cleansing. Removing the guilt, removing the sin. Uh, just continuing here in John, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. So change your diet and avoid the cancer. We don't want cancer, but if there is cancer, we have a remedy. We have a treatment. So we want to, not saying every cancer is caused by a bad diet, but you know what I'm saying. People have strong opinions about these things, but, but prevention is the best cure. So try to avoid sin as best you can by the grace of God, taking the way of escape from temptation. But, he says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but for the whole world. Do you believe that? And are you willing to grab hold of that and live in light of that by confessing, by humbling yourself by shedding this hypocritical persona, this hypocritical fake Christianity, this bare minimum Christianity? Are you willing to put it all aside and be real with God and with others? Walking in the light. Not like the Pharisee at the temple who says, God, I thank You that I'm not like this, that, and the other great sinner and offender and scandalous person. No, like the tax collector, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's the biblical alternative. Now, in saying this, understand, Paul is not suggesting that we should back down or back away from scriptural principles of truth and righteousness. We can't end today without saying that and just saying something about that. He's not suggesting that we should back away from our principles. He's not suggesting that the solution and the remedy for hypocrisy is to just stop being dogmatic about the truth and righteousness of God's Word. That's what you see in so many churches today. They would agree that hypocrisy is this big problem and that people are saying many things and not living in accordance with those things. But then their solution would be, well, then just back off and don't be dogmatic about anything. Their solution would be, don't in any sense boast in the Lord. Their solution would be, don't seek to know His will. I mean, who can really know these things anyway? I mean, this is just what I believe, and this is what you believe, and I believe that Jesus is God, and that He's the only Savior. You believe something else, and this person believes in different strokes for different folks, 
And so the way to avoid hypocrisy is just to not make much of a profession of anything in any kind of a certain and dogmatic way. So we don't know His will. We don't take time to seek to approve the things that are excellent and distinguish them from the things that are not. We shouldn't be confident in anything. We shouldn't seek to be a guide to the blind. We shouldn't seek to be a light to those who are in darkness. We just live in this sort of gray twilight. There's no real black and white distinction in terms of truth and error, in terms of righteousness and unrighteousness. We begin to gravitate away from any sense that there is actually foolishness in the world and the Word of God needs to be brought to bear so that people can be instructed, so that infants in the faith can be taught and trained. We back away from the idea that there is a form of knowledge and truth in the law. Biblical principles of theology and doctrine and practice that are ironclad. So my friends, let's be very careful. Don't take the easy way out by just backing away from your Christian profession. If you're dealing with hypocrisy in your parenting of your children, the solution is not to say, well now I'm just going to step away. No discipline, no restrictions. I've sinned away my ability to exercise any type of authority. Not at all. Not at all. We still sometimes need to bind heavy burdens. And we need to do the heavy lifting of helping to bear those burdens with those under our charge and putting forth the effort to help and encourage. That's that's the biblical alternative to hypocrisy, not the easy way out. I'm just going to back away altogether. If you back away altogether, what makes you think your children or the members of your church, or whatever it is, are not going to back away altogether as well. No, we need to know what we believe. We need to ride forth with Christ in truth, humility, and righteousness. Okay? A sandwich, you need two pieces of bread, and you need the meat, or whatever, you know, maybe, uh, maybe some lettuce and tomato in there, but okay, we, don't want to, we want the whole sandwich. We want the truth and the righteousness. Yes, but there's got to be something in the sandwich. We need the humility. We don't want just the humility. We need the, we need the bread. We need that sandwich of Christ's agenda in the world. Truth and righteousness, but inward humility right there in the center. We need all three. We need all three. And uh, we need to be, just in closing, we need to be like... Ezra, Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. This is the sort of verse that if somebody is looking to someday become an elder, looking to be a preacher of the gospel, even looking to be a faithful head of the home, this is the kind of verse you need to meditate on. It says, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. He prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, and to do it, to do it, and to teach the statutes and ordinances in Israel. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be working right now to expose our hypocrisy. We pray that the next time that we do something that is hypocritical, that 
others would not be the first to notice it, that, but that we would be the first to notice it in ourselves and that we'd be able to repent and that through our humility and repentance, uh, we pray that you would restore the years that the locusts of hypocrisy have eaten and that you would grant restoration of our sincerity individually, familially, and congregationally, even as a nation, that we would be among those who are blessed with the forgiveness of sins and in whose spirit there is no guile. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.